Father, we give you praise and thanks for uh, the tradition that we stand atop of. Lord, we recognize that we are, uh, we're not originators of sound doctrine, that we are those who have received it. Lord, we want to hold tightly to it and we want to pass it along to the next generation as faithfully and completely and perfectly as possible. So we pray that your spirit would sift us where, wherever our thinking is sub-biblical, wherever our lives are sub-biblical, we pray that you would reform us. And uh, we just pray for the in some ways, the heartbeat, this, this notion of reformed but always reforming, we pray that that heartbeat would really uh, sit heavily upon us. We pray that as children and adults, we would, we would hold tightly to those things which are true and recognize that there are places where we need to refine our understanding and our, and our living according to, your, according to your word. And so we praise and thank you for uh, that tradition, but also, Lord, the work of your spirit in our lives. Uh, we are here because you have put faith in us that we didn't have before. You have changed our hearts. They were hearts of stone and you made them hearts of flesh. And so, Father, we praise and thank you for that. Uh, your gospel is a beautiful, marvelous thing. And we just pray that we would have um, uh, just a, a precise understanding of, of the gospel. And uh, we pray that that would just put songs and thanksgivings and joy in our hearts. Uh, Lord, what a glorious thing it is we get to celebrate with your gospel, the true gospel. And pray for Brad as he preaches uh, in an hour and a half or so or a couple hours. Pray that you would bless him in that, uh, that sacred task. And we pray that uh, even uh, the joy that he's going to talk about, uh, we pray that that would just um, cause us to sing today even louder and um, more sincerely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I don't think it's been used so far, so I'm going to pull something from this book. So this is a conversation that uh, Alice has with Humpty Dumpty from uh, Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Alice in Wonderland, if you guys don't know that. So, uh, so Humpty Dumpty says, well, that shows that there are 364 days when you might get unbirthday presents. Certainly, said Alice, and only one for birthday presents, you know. There's glory for you. I don't know what you mean by glory, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't till I tell you. I meant there's a nice knockdown argument for you. But glory doesn't mean a nice knockdown argument, Alice objected. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. Alice was too much puzzled to say anything, so after a minute, Humpty Dumpty began again. They've a temper, some of them, particularly verbs. They're the proudest. Adjectives you can do anything with, but not verbs. However, I can manage the whole of them. Impenetrability, that's what I say. Would you tell me, please, as said Alice, what that means? So I use that as a um, great illustration of this idea of reformed. So 
it's a simple word, right? It means to change something so it gets better. So if you, you have something that exists and then you reform it, you make it better, you improve it. You do things which are, are different to it so that it, it means something it didn't mean before. And so in some ways when we're talking theology, that's useful because what happened in the Reformation, so you've got reformed, you've got So you've got being reformed. So that's what this class is about, right? We are, we are a reformed church, which means we're probably connected to this group of guys called the reformers, which more or less circled around this event called the Reformation, all right? So obviously that word reform is, is uh, it's a big deal. That's how lefty, lefties write on a board. So. So reform is a big, big part of what we're talking about here. <clears throat> um, and then you get this other kind of, uh, well, very related idea. So reformed, always reforming. So if you want the Latin, Reformata, semper, reformanda. Reformata, semper, reformanda. Reformed, always reforming. And as happens sometimes in theology, phrases get attached to things and sometimes you can't ever find the source of the phrase. Uh, and sometimes you learn that the, it was actually your enemies that gave you that name and not, not your friends. And so it's possible that this reformata, semper, uh, reformanda uh, phrase came from the enemies of the reformers and not uh, their friends. But it has this idea of reformed, always reforming, which means there's this aspect of things that you have, well, you are reformed. So you, have, you, have, you identify with the things that have been reformed, but you're also always reforming. So you're changing the things which need to be changed. Um, so the, the, guy, the Reformation uh, and the reformers and the Reformation, they had a certain understanding of that, uh, which um, we do hold to, except what we're gonna discover is that there's things which are true of the reformed of the 1500s that we actually f feel like needed to be reformed. So we are, we are part of the always reforming part, even looking back on the reformers. So we'll get this all squared away as we proceed here. So what was reformed? So if the, uh, if the reformers were doing some reforming during the reformation, what was it that they actually reformed? But before we get to the what of uh, the reform, we want to think about the who. Um, it's just good. This is one of those historical moments where, as a Christian, you really want to, um, you just want to have a solid grasp of these historical events. And, and actually, I say events, but it's, re it's really Martin Luther. Now, we've, we've heard a lot about Martin Luther over the last several years, but uh, he's one of the guys you just want to, you really want to have grounded in your understanding. It's kind of automatic, you know, when you think Martin Luther, you want to think, 1517, you know, the, uh, the 95 Theses, or the event we talk about today, which is, which is this thunderstorm event in 1515. But you want to think 1500s, Martin Luther. And you want to have some sense of what happened to him and what, what were the consequences of, of what happened to him, because they are, they are truly historical. 
the, the, the most hardened skeptic, the, the, the most bitter enemy of God is going to recognize that Martin Luther was a massively consequential historical figure. So let's think about that. So 1483, there's this guy, Hans Luther, who uh, was a copper ref uh, in the copper refining business. So he's got a wife, Margaret, and they have a son whose name was Martin Luther. So uh, late 1400s, that's where we are in history. Uh, so they had, uh, so Hans didn't, didn't want his son to become a uh, copper refiner. It was a hard life. He wanted his son to have a more, uh, more easygoing life, so he wanted him to be a lawyer. So that was his ambition for his son. And obviously physically uh, easier, not intellectually easier, but physically easier. So Martin Luther is educated accordingly, but then 1505, Martin Luther has, uh, there's this famous thunderstorm incident. So he's, in, he's, he's riding with some friends in a thunderstorm, bolts of lightning everywhere, he panics, and he actually cries out to St. Anne, St. Anne, if you will save me, I will become a monk. So he's saved, obviously not by St. Anne, but he is saved, uh, and so he, he keeps his word. I mean, this is a 22-year-old guy, and yet, uh, as, as you discover throughout his life, uh, he could consumingly, comprehensively give himself to something if he felt like that's what he needed to do, if his conscience was compelling him. So he actually keeps his word. He becomes a monk. His father is greatly disappointed in his son's decision, but he becomes a monk. Um, and so he's a, he's a young guy in his 20s. He's, his whole life has been in the context of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which uh, has been true for a thousand years, basically, <laughs> that the Roman Catholic Church is the church. So when you thought church, you thought Roman Catholic Church. There was no, there was no, there was no sense which, like I, I would look at Jay and say, oh, Jay's a Roman Catholic, but I go to that other church in town. There, there is no other church in town. All right. So the Roman Catholic Church has a has a massive dominance uh, over the culture. Um, so every person when they went to church, they would go to the Roman Catholic Mass, which was uh, it's it's their word for. Uh, the, the corporate gathering, the worship service, with uh, some strange things attached to it, which is in some ways you take the Lord's Supper and then Christ is being sort of re-sacrificed. You know, just like you, you've committed more sins that need more forgiveness. Uh, so we're going we're gonna, to we think of the, the, the mass, the elements in such a way that in some ways Christ is re-sacrificed. So the, the body becomes the literal body of Jesus. The blood becomes the literal blood of Jesus. In, so, in some of their technical explanations, they wouldn't say things exactly like this, but the practical result of this uh, is what we're talking about here. So the notion that you're saved by faith in Christ uh, and that that's how you get to heaven. That's, that's a common understanding we have, but that would not have been a common understanding at the time. So Martin Luther assumed, like any Roman Catholic, especially a monk, would assume that he had to basically uh, be perfect, uh, like behaviorally perfect, if he was ever going to get to heaven and have that declaration of, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so he, he strove as a, as a zealous uh, firebrand to become perfect. But he discovered what you, you discover, which is that you're not perfect. And so he, so he thought, well, I need to do what Catholics do, which is confess my sins. And so he would confess his sins daily, you know, sometimes up to uh, literally hours a day, because you have that many sins every day. And so his advisor, Johann von Staupitz, so um, <clears throat> uh, born slightly earlier than, than Luther, but he, 
in some ways he was used in this very providential, uh, marvelous way where he, he got exasperated with Martin Luther and uh, he basically said, just go study the Bible. You know, this is obviously sim simplifying some things, but he basically said, just go simplify, uh, just go study the Bible to, uh, uh, to, to, in some ways, to distract yourself from this sin obsession that you have. And so, like everything Martin Luther did, he did it consumingly, wholeheartedly, passionately, devotedly. So he gave himself to the Psalms. Um, and he became uh, a teacher of the Psalms. So he would study and teach on the Psalms. Uh, and that began uh, this um, kind of this work of softening in his life. It wasn't the, the work, he didn't get converted uh, in his study of the Psalms, but this softening started to happen. This, the, the life that's within the Word of God began to penetrate uh, his heart. But it was, his, it was his study of Romans, which that's what changed everything. So he began to study Romans, and at first he's, he's, he bumps up against this idea of the righteousness of God, which is that, is, that is the theme in the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. And in his mind, it was the, um, so God is righteous and demands perfect obedience from us. And if we don't have perfect obedience, we can't, we can't get the salvation that God offers. So that was his understanding. And so he, but, but Romans wouldn't let him go because uh, he saw something, something's not quite clicking here. And so, so he agonizes, 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 and it gets to Romans, or it's, you know, we can summarize it in Romans 1, 16 and 17 as, as sort of his logjam. So for I'm not ashamed, this is Paul talking, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, so the gospel is used by the power of God so that those who believe are going to be saved, Jew first, then the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we look at that and we say, well, that means I believe in Jesus, I believe in Christ, and he gives me the righteousness that he demands. So righteousness is a gift. But that's not how Luther would have approached that. And so he... You know, he's just beating his head against the wall trying to figure this thing out, and then suddenly it just clicks. It dawns on him. So then uh, this is a, we've read this paragraph several times over the last years, but it's, again, it's worth revisiting just so it's, 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 it's solid in your understanding. So uh, his conversion in his own words. So I'm on page three now. So at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, and for us that would be hyperbole, but not for him. So meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that, uh, that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scripture from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God. That is what God does in us. The power of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word righteousness of God. 
Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. So he had discovered that in the Word of God, you have this clear statement that what you need most desperately, which is righteous, to be declared righteous by God, what you need most desperately, you get as a gift when you believe. Now again, this is all very familiar ground to us. We say this almost every Sunday, if not every single Sunday, in a song or a prayer or in a sermon. So very familiar to us. It was not familiar at the time. This was a radical bombshell. Um, this was like a nuclear bomb just detonate, detonated in your, in your world. Suddenly, everything is different. And so some things that, um, so this event in Luther's life illustrates a lot that, that is true of uh, the Reformed and the Reformation. And so we want to think about this now. So, some, so what was Reformed? Some things that were Reformed. So now we get into the, uh, the five solas. And again, this is, we've been talking about this a decent amount lately. First, the first and sort of the starting point sola is sola scriptura, scripture alone. And so in, in Luther's life, you see that he turned to the scriptures to get truth, to get understanding about something, and his understanding changed according to what the Bible teaches, and he was never the same after that. And so that kept happening in all these different areas of understanding and theology. The reformers kept going back to the Bible and seeing, well, sometimes they would see that, that what they had been taught is exactly right. I mean, they didn't change their understanding of the Trinity. Uh, when they looked at the Bible, they realized, no, that's exactly correct, so we're going to hold to that. But when it came to gospel understanding, uh, truth of what's saved, what grace is, uh, so the Roman Catholics would say, would say that grace is what God gives you so that, so that then you can obey perfectly so that then you can be saved. So you're, you're, you need to be obedient perfectly to be saved. It's a good thing we get grace to get there. But Luther would say that's not how it works at all. You're declared righteous. You, grace is what de declares you righteous uh, freely and instantly. And then, yes, God's going God's to change you over time, and you will become more obedient. But that's not the hope of your salvation. Anyway, so sola scriptura, Bible alone, that's a foundational truth for the Reformers. And that was a new thing, because uh, at that time, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, they would say, technically they would say, it's amazing how, how many bad markers we have in our church, isn't it? <clears throat> Someday we'll, we'll not have that. In the new heavens and new earth, there won't be weak uh, whiteboard markers. Um, all right. So, bad guys. This is the Darth Vader view. Roman Catholic Church. So, they would say that the church equals the Bible. All right, so that the authority of the church is equal to the authority of the Bible. But here's the clincher. The church and the church alone can tell you how to interpret the Bible. So popes and archbishops tell you how to interpret the Bible. And so because of that, well, suddenly the, the Roman Catholic Church is now, the authority of the Roman Catholic Church is actually greater than the Bible. So even though they might, you know, you push them in a corner, they might say, no, technically it's the church equals the Bible. We, we have authority. And of course, this is a bad view too. I'm not saying that's an acceptable view, but they might say it that way. But practically, because the church tells you how to interpret the Bible, well, then at, at the end of the day, it's really the church that has greater authority than the Bible itself. 
So you don't turn to the Bible to figure something out, you turn to the priests. And in fact, they, they believe this to such an extent that they wouldn't let people read the Bible. That's why guys like William Tyndale, who wanted to translate the Bible from Latin, which no one understood, into English so that an Englishman could understand it, when William Tyndale wanted to do such a thing, they, they burned him alive. Actually, they didn't burn him alive. They burned him at the stake. They, they, they hung him before they burned him because he was, a, he was an ordained priest. Um, but you get the point. So a guy wanted, he, um, uh, t- guys like Tyndale wanted to interpret the Bible into the language that people actually understood so that they could read their Bibles and understand them and read them and interpret and figure things out themselves. But the church said no, because it's not necessary. Since we have the definitive interpretations, you don't need a Bible. You, need, you just need the church. Anyway, that's the Roman Catholic view. So Martin Luther comes along and, and basically throws out the Roman Catholic Church understanding of the gospel and says, no, the Bible's understanding of the gospel is the definitive view. So this was, that was a radical thing. So then you get to three more uh, solas, and I actually won't write all these just for the sake of time. But on page four, you see in the second paragraph from the end, so the, the gospel that, that Martin Luther held to and that the reformers held to was a gospel that's by grace alone, so uh, sola gratia. And it's through Christ alone that we're saved, that, that we, uh, we have any hope. So that's the solus scriptus, so it, solus Christus, sorry, solus Christus, so Christ alone. And we access this grace, we access Christ by faith alone, so sola fide. Uh, and then the last thing is the, you know, the, who gets the glory? If, 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 the, if the definitive reason you are saved is because of God's grace in your life, God's sovereign work of saving you and changing you, well then he gets the glory. You don't get the glory. And so that's where the soli deo gratia comes in. Uh, to God alone be the glory. Yeah, so those, these, those, the five solos are sometimes looked at as a, that's a good way to get your arms around the Reformation. So what was distinct about the Reformation? And these five solos, uh, they can push you along in a, in a large way to understanding those things. So sola scriptura, once again, scripture alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, not Chris alone, sorry about that. Sola, not sola fide, but sola fide, another typo, sorry about that. It's faith alone, and then soli deo, gloria, glory to God alone. So Brad, you want to under, amend any of my Martin Luther summary there? No, that's great. That was, okay, I wasn't off on anything? Okay, good. Yeah, other than the fact Martin Luther did not believe in Chris alone, he did believe in Christ alone, so <laughs> note that for the record. All right, but then we go back to this idea of reformed, always reforming. And actually, it's really this that gets us there. To be reformed, always reforming, really means you're always going back to the scriptures to evaluate. Are my views correct? Is my life correct? Am I living correctly? Am I thinking correctly? So because it's sola scriptura, that's our final answer. You know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, William Tyndale, all these great reformers, great men who were very fruitful, prolific, left us wonderful writings uh, and thoughts. Uh, They are not our final authority. It's the Bible, sola scriptura, which is our final authority. 
And so sometimes we go back to what they said and did, and we think that was wrong. That was either a behavior that was wrong, a decision they made about how to, tr how to handle a situation. Maybe we, maybe we look at that and we say that's totally wrong, although we always have to judge people according to their times. Don't want to be hasty in your judgments about them. And then sometimes you look back at their, their writings, their thinking, and we say, no, that's not true. You know, the, this passage or those passages really correct that or amend that, change that. And so we don't, we're not flippant uh, uh, in, in this idea of always reforming. But we do understand that that is part of the deal. You know, God, it's, it's almost like God just chooses to reveal certain things at certain times, uh, you know, because we're human and we can only handle so much transformation, right? Reformation at a given time. All right, so... <clears throat> Some things that we hold in common with the Reformed. So this would be where we are Reformed and we really don't want to always be reforming because it's right. Okay? This is where we, we really do hold to what they taught and we say, yes, amen. The Bible affirms that in numerous places. We love what they say about this. We read them, quote them, study them on these ideas. So the first one is, uh, so again, Sola Scriptura, a very high view of the Bible as the supreme authority. So, uh, you know, in a gover the government of our church has elders at the, uh, at, who have the authority to govern this church, you know, Cornerstone Fellowship Church. However, you, you can't look to us as having absolute authority in all thinking and, and how to live and how to think. All right. The final authority for all of us, for us and you, is the, is the Bible. And as much as we reflect what the Bible teaches, you should embrace it, and, as, and wherever we deviate from that, and in some ways you're bound to deviate from that. Although talk to us first before you start doing that. <laughs> we would love to t uh, see which, which one of us is out of, uh, maybe wrong or out of bounds there. But a high view of the Bible is a big deal. So we love, so we love to look back on, uh, you know, John Calvin, if you read his Institutes, uh, sounds, I mean, to name it the Institutes of the Christian religion just sounds scary, doesn't it? But if you just open up the, the Institute's first page and just start to read and just say, but Lord, I'm just going to read as far as I can until it gets really impossibly complex and difficult, you might find you can get a lot further than you think. But he opens up with these just great thoughts about the Bible and what the Bible is to us as Christians. Uh, so we love to look back at what they say about the Bible and, and learn from that and pull from that. And so there we're not trying to deviate from them. We're really trying to understand them because they're such excellent uh, uh, sources of truth. And then we get a high view of the triune God. So when we, when we want to study the Trinity, it's, it's, it's rich and wonderful to go back to uh, in the, those who identify with the Reformed tradition. You know, it's in Reformed tradition, so you've got the Reformation guys, you know, the first, uh, the first wave of the, of the Reformed tradition. So that's where you get the, the Martin Luther, the John Calvin, the Ulrich Zwingli's, the, uh, the John Knox, William Tyndale's, those guys. Um, that's the first wave. But, but as you go on, you get to the Puritans. Um, and that's the Westminster Confession of Faith. We'll see you get to the... Uh, Guys that we, we call Reformed Baptists. Uh, if you keep on going, you get to guys like uh, uh, Turretin, Francis Turretin, rich and wonderful, although 
pretty long, verbose, um, but great. If you can, if you have the patience, you get to guys like Charles Spurgeon, who was reformed, but he was a Baptist. Uh, you keep on going, you get to guys like Herman Bavinck, also in the Reformed tradition, really rich and wonderful. John Murray in the 20th century, you get guys like John Murray, all the Johns actually, John, uh, John Piper, and uh, you get R.C. Sproul. Um, you get guys like uh, D.A. Carson, if you've ever heard those names, uh, Jerry Bridges, um, G.I. Packer. Those guys would identify as Reformed, you know, or you know, and Wayne Grudem would identify as Reformed. Um, and those guys, um, maybe with the exception of Wayne Grudem, you would look out on the Trinity and say, these guys are just rich and wonderful, and I want to understand more and more what they say about the Trinity, because it's just, it's just powerful. Um, sometimes it's kind of long, but it's just wonderful. So we look at them and we say, they had, a, they had a, a, just a very high view of God, um, and it's, it's inspiring to go back to some of those guys and just kind of be uh, freshly reminded of just how glorious our God is. Because uh, sometimes it's hard to think deep thoughts about God. You want to, but it's sometimes it's just hard to get there. And so it's helpful to go back to some of the, some of the, some of the people in the Reformed tradition and, uh, and just read their thoughts about God. So uh, just as an example, um, they would hold to a, a God that is absolutely sovereign over all things. So God spoke, let there be, and then created a universe. Spoke it, spoke it a few times, but then he created a universe. That's the big and powerful. But he also numbers the hairs on your head. He numbers them. He doesn't just know how many you have. He actually numbers them. He controls them. Uh, so sparrows, you know, uh, the random bird that no other person is ever going to see, the random bird that dies in a forest somewhere. Uh, God knows when uh, and where that happens and controls that as well. So his sovereignty is it's over the huge and it's over the small. So that takes us into uh, complica uh, complicated water sometimes, but nonetheless, we hold to that. Uh, so we, we love to read the reformers on those kinds of things. Uh, the gospel, um, a, a salvation that's by grace from first to last. And one of the key, area, key areas here is actually regeneration. The idea that you are born again, you, you believe in Jesus Christ because at a moment in time, the Holy Spirit took your heart, which was a stony, rebellious, evil heart, and he changed it. And he gave you a heart of flesh. And you instantly responded in faith. You were changed. You were born again, sorry. You were regenerated. You were born again. And then you responded in faith. Um, and so that, that notion that you are, you are regenerated and then you believe, that sounds kind of simple, but actually that's, a, that's really a, a watershed moment. Because other people would say you believe and then you're regenerated. You believe and then you're born again. But the reformers pointed out that no, uh, and this is another view that we, 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 we love and appreciate about them. They would say that no, you are so dead in your sins. You are so evil in your disposition. You are so opposed to God. You will never believe in God unless he changes your heart. You will never. I mean, what else could dead in sins and trespasses mean than that? You can't respond until he changes you so that you can respond. So that's what... Uh, um, uh, that's what um, 
Irresistible Grace is all about. So in the, in the TULIP acronym, um, Irresistible Grace, sometimes the reformers talk about Irresistible Grace, and that's what they're getting at, that it's that grace that you, you, you can't resist because it's sovereign, it's God's grace. So he, he, he takes that grace, changes your heart, and then you respond in faith. So that's not, that's not part of the gospel in the sense that you have to believe it in order to be saved. I mean, no, there's, you, know, you don't preach that in an evangelistic message. But it is part of the gospel. If you think about all that God does, the, all the good news, what's the, what's the good news that we celebrate and we get to study? Uh, well, that's, that is part of the good news uh, that, we, that we go back to and say that's how we're saved. Um, and then another, another thing we, we pull from, from the Reformers, and this is where we're Reformed and not reforming, we're Reformed, is their view of man, uh, man and woman, or humankind. So they have a high view of man in the sense that man is made in the image of God, unlike any other creature on earth. So we don't, we don't see some kind of uh, you know, evolutionary progression from animal to man. So there's no real distinction between us. We're basically part of the same uh, you know, uh, swamp change from uh, uh, less complex to more complex beings or whatever. So, no, we would say there's, there's everything in creation that's not made in the image of God, and there's mankind which is, who is made in the image of God. So that's, that gives us a high view of man. And friend from, um, however, that's, that man uniquely made in the image of God sinned, fell in the Garden of Eden, and so another thing we pull from uh, the Reformed tradition on is the impact of that fall. So that sin did not just affect Adam. It affected all of creation. So we are born in sin because of Adam's sin, and all of creation is cursed because of Adam's sin. So one day, the offspring of the woman, Jesus, will crush fully and completely and forever the offspring of, of the serpent, the devil, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and all effects and traces of sin will be gone, except uh, you know, the reminders of those who are suffering in hell. But in terms of the new heavens, new earth, no, no trace, no effect. So all the people that will be in the new heavens, new earth, Christians, those who believe, uh, they will get to experience what humanity was meant to be, which is you know, fully people, bodily people, doing people things. You know, we're not going to have wings and fly around in the new heavens and new earth. Um, we will do people things on earth. Uh, however, no sin, no trace of sin. So that, that notion of, of man made in the image of God, cataclysmic fall, and then destined for this, this glorified state as, as man. That's, that's a re- very reformed idea, which we really appreciate in their writings. Because the temptation is to, maybe to take on a very low, low view of man. You know, if you, if you think of, uh, you know, sometimes when you hear envir- environmentalists, uh, like uh, an unbelieving environmentalist talk, they'll talk as if the environment is more important than humankind. You know, we should, we, should, uh, we should limit birth rates. We should have fewer children because people are taking over too much of the, of the, of the earth. And, it's, and people are the problem with, uh, uh, you know, the, the biosphere. We need, to, we, need to, we need to cool the earth. And so we need to go so far as to limit birth rates or whatever. And you can, you can hear some people talk about that, which is, which is absurd if you think about how valuable and eternal people are and the reality that this entire creation will one day be gone. 
You know, this, it's not the creation that's eternal with people being temporal. It's people that are eternal. This creation is temporal. It's going to be remade in the new heavens, new earth. And so that high view of God is, or high view of man is a distinct thing. However, what's, uh, what's powerful about the reformed is they get sin. They have an answer. You know, to, you know, there's a, there's an insanity, uh, in a sense, a mystery about evil and the devil and heinous acts, of course. You can't, you can't give a satisfying answer that satisfies at every level to why this guy did this terrible thing to this other guy or child or whatever. However, they, 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 the reform do have an explanation in the sense of this is what sin does. The fall of man was not a small thing. It was a cataclysmic, disastrous thing. And so that high view of man along with a, in a high view of sin in that sense, uh, we get that from the Reformed. So that's the Reformed stuff that we don't want to be always reforming. We don't want to look at that and say, yeah, we're going to, maybe we'll hold to it this year, but next year we'll probably just throw it out because it's probably wrong. It's probably not in the Bible. But those things are so pervasively taught in the Bible. We, you know, we put our stake in those things and, and don't want to let them go. All right, so that's, that's where we start, uh, the Reformed part. But then the always reforming, at least when it comes to doctrine, that has led us to think uh, that, you know what, they were great on a lot of things, but their view of baptism was not great. Uh, we look at the New Testament baptisms, the teaching on baptism, we say, you know what, baptism in the New Testament was for believers, people who professed faith in Christ. Those are the ones who were and should be baptized, not infants, in other words. So we're, we're the Reformed almost to a man. Uh, uh, they would say that converts should be baptized, those who aren't Christians and become Christians, but also their infants should be baptized. And this is, this is not just young kids who profess faith early. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. And this is literally infants, you know. So your, your babe's born, and then uh, at some very very soon moment you baptize that infant because they are they are part of the people of God and so it's a you say they're adults that were converted during Reformation did they did they still consider the baptism that the Roman church had done as sufficient <clears throat> they weren't re-having looted and re-baptized yeah, that's a great point, actually, is they, they did hold to, uh, I think there were a few exceptions to this, but by and large, they all held to the idea that your baptism in the Roman Catholic Church was sufficient. So all the reformers who, uh, the, whose names we know were all baptized in a Roman Catholic Church, and they didn't get rebaptized. Yeah. Did they struggle? I mean, would they, I mean what sort of gymnastics did they do to well, the idea is that it's the, the, um, the value of the event is not tied to the guy who did it or the understanding of the guy who did it. So you're the unsaved priest who baptized you, it's okay. Your baptism is still, it's, it still is what it is. You know, it still has that value. And it's like we look at, all, we look at their, their teaching and thinking on baptism and say, what were you I think that's where you probably had too much of that Wittenberg beer for Martin Luther. It's like, I understand you just, you know, drank beer and let, and the word of God did its work. But it, I think that's the point where you, you probably needed to drink a little bit less and study a little bit more. Uh, um, it's, it's a weird thing. 
And eventually, uh, Ulrich Zwingli and, and later um, people in the Reformed tradition, they would have, they, I mean, they have elaborate, massive explanations for why they continue to baptize infants. But as a Baptist, it's like, I understand that book is 800 pages, and it's, it's just not true. It's just not right. And it's hard to, I don't know. They, they, they would connect it to so many things that uh, you, it's, you just can't un untangle it. For them, the consequence of untangling to them feels too big. But, oh, sorry. So more modern day, how do people who still, or groups who still believe that, how do they justify Jesus being baptized when he was getting ready to start his ministry? I mean, what... Well, they look at the new. Uh, they would look at the New Testament, and you know, Amen. All the baptisms that are recorded, you know, but they'd also say that that's the that was the the start of something. So um, that's why I say with converts, they don't they don't reject adult baz baptisms. Period. Anywhere, um, but they would say once that adult is baptized, <clears throat> I mean, Jesus always did isn't being converted. That was a different, that was a different thing going on there. Uh, but like the people baptized under John the Baptist um, for repentance, repentance of sins, and then especially the baptisms in the book of Acts, they would look at those and say, yes, converts be baptized. However, once those converts start having children, their children sort of get brought into the, the gospel promises and should, should therefore be baptized. Um, yeah, so they're not, yeah, so again, they're not throwing out New Testament baptisms categorically, but they just do weird things with them. And obviously they're going to do a lot with um, those places that talk about households being saved and baptized in the New Testament. I think their, their explanations of those passages are really deficient, but anyway, um, they would hold to that. <clears throat> so that's um, what happens in the in the late 1500s, early 1600s, is you get the rise of, of a group called the Anabaptists. Um, <clears throat> Anabaptists, so, and that, that means baptize again. And so that's a, that's a case of, of receiving your label from your enemies and not your friends. So we, we would say, <clears throat> We're not being baptized again. We're being baptized for the first time. You know, sprinkling, getting sprinkled by water as a baby is, that's, that's a shower. That's not a baptism. I'm not being baptized again. I'm being baptized now because I believe. <clears throat> However, the, by and large, they were called Anabaptists because they were seen as being baptized as infants and being baptized as converts. But what, ha but what happens as you read church history is if you see the name Anabaptist, almost always, almost always, it means people we would never identify with. All right? There were people who had crazy ideas about a lot of things, and they also believed in believer's baptism. We don't identify with them at all. So that's, that's really on the, on the continent. Um, so that, and that's a, it's a big enough group that it gets talked about in church history a lot. But there's this other group that's much smaller, and that, and that arose in England, and these guys are called Reformed Baptists. So they identified as Reformed Baptists. So they were, uh, 
Interestingly, a lot of these guys are connected to Cambridge University. There was a time when like, Cambridge just produced all of these great thinkers uh, because there was such an emphasis on kind of a back to the Bible understanding of all things uh, out, of, out of Cambridge. And so a lot of these guys were you know, studying to become Anglican priests or whatever, and yet they would come out in sometimes very different places. So a lot of those guys, um, you know, this is, the, this is the age of the Puritans. So you had Puritan Presbyterians, and then you have this, this small group of Puritan Anabaptists. And so they, um, they did plant churches. There were not many of them, but they did plant churches, small churches. Um, they were persecuted uh, by, actually by the Reformed community. The Reformed community didn't trust them because of, because of the crazy Anabaptists on the continent. Then the Anabaptists in, in England were, were seen as, like there's no way you could be sane. It's kind of like when people write books about the crazy charismatics today. So, uh, you know, John, John MacArthur's recent book, Strange Fire, uh, who had a lot to say about Benny Hinn. Like we, and, and Benny Hinn did crazy things and thought crazy things, thinks crazy things, does crazy things. We would never identify with Benny Hinn in our theology or practice in any way. However, he calls himself a charismatic. We call ourselves charismatic. So anyway, you get that guilt by association thing going on. So with these Reformed Baptists, there was all kinds of guilt by association. So they did what a lot of people do at such times, is they went on record to say, here's what we believe. This is what we believe. We don't believe the crazy things. Here's what we believe. And so they wrote this thing called, um, well, there were two of them, but they wrote a confession of faith. So the first, one, the first one is called the First London Baptist Confession of Faith. The second one is called the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, so that, um, the second one is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And the glory of that confession um, I'll get to our personal history with it in a second. But the glory of that confession is they basically said, we're going to take the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647, and we're going to basically just reprint it, copy and paste situation. We're going to copy and paste the whole thing because we believe it, except we're going to change it at a few spots where we disagree with it. All right, so the Westminster Confession of Faith, I, I don't know the exact number. It's like 33 or 34 chapters of beliefs. And so they took out, actually, I don't think they took out a chapter. They, they greatly revised the church chapter. Uh, but when you get to the sacraments uh, on baptism and the Lord's Supper, especially, Lord, uh, especially baptism, well, that's where they inserted their own views on baptism. That this is for believers. However, the, but the, the whole first, like, uh, 19 chapters are essentially unchanged from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So what they said about the, the scriptures, identical to the 1647 Puritans. What, the, what those Puritans said about the Trinity and uh, Christ and salvation and election and predestination and perseverance of the saints and all of these great rich doctrines, it's identical from the Westminster Confession to the Reform, or sorry, the, the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. But you get, you get a, I mean, it's a, it's a big detour. So when you go, yes, we agree with everything except baptism. Well, that, that small detour is one of those things that makes a big difference. You know, you, we probably can't be in church together. It, at least it would be very complicated to be in church together if we had this really divergent views on baptism. So that had, that had consequences right there. Um, 
So a guy like uh, John Bunyan, so maybe for Pilgrim's Progress. So John Bunyan was a, uh, was a reformed Baptist. He, he, we wouldn't agree with all of, the, of the, his approaches to the church, but he was a Reformed Baptist, so we do, we do appreciate that. Um, Charles Spurgeon would identify as a, a Reformed Baptist. And if you read enough Spurgeon, you realize, I think he's a, he's a continuationist as well. I think he's a Reformed continuationist Baptist. That's, another, that's, a, that's a later class. Um, but Spurgeon would be a Reformed Baptist, you know. Hardly can, uh, um, affirming the, the doctrines of grace, but at the same time in believers' baptism. So he's preaching that you need to be saved and then you need to be baptized. So our history with the 689, the reason that's really relevant to us is, so Trinity Fellowship Church is our denomination. When we were, we were thinking about how to start our process of a, a confession of faith or a statement of faith, a lot of us were convinced that we should start with an existing confession. And then there was, then the debate was, do we just use the existing confession, you know, 1689 unchanged, just leave it as is and kind of add some other stuff on top of that. But the prevailing, the majority view was that, no, we shouldn't do that. We should do what gets done uh, and has been done for, for centuries in the church is you take, you take an existing confession and then you modify it according to your own beliefs. So we took this existing 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith and we modified it in some, uh, well, the major thing we modified was their, was their view of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit um, at work in the Christian's life. They, they essentially didn't address that at all. And so we added chapters on that. Their view of church government was different than ours. And so we changed the view of church government. But the fact that we are... <clears throat> Uh, reformed Baptists means uh, we can talk to a, a, a modern Reformed Baptist who holds to the 1689 because there are, there are some churches even in this area that hold to the 1689 and we can have a lot of things in common. The fact that we're charismatic though means that they're probably not going to come to our church but we can have great fellowship outside of church. Alright so, so that leads us to the third thing in this sola scriptura always reforming. So we're reformed in, you know, we can amen so much of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So in that sense, we are very reformed, but we are always reforming. So we go to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith as our starting point on baptism. But you know what? Then God did this amazing thing in the 20th century. So he sent these three waves of the Holy Spirit. The first wave was Azusa Street Pentecostal Revival in 1906. Second wave, Charismatic Renewal in the 60s and 70s. And then what... Um, Peter Wagner called the third wave of the Spirit was in the 1980s through the vineyard and, and related churches. Um, so those three waves of the Holy Spirit totally changed how Christians, or at least how many Christians, thought of the work of the Spirit in the Christian's life. And so, um, so suddenly you, you go to 1 Corinthians 14 and on the diversity of gifts that are talked about there, 1 Corinthians 12 and the diversity of gifts talked about there. And suddenly people are starting to say, you know what? All those gifts are for today. It's not just some of them in this weird, weirdly interpreted way, but no, all of them are for today. Um, and and one, of the, one of the real points of departure is uh, the thoughts on prophecy as an example. So we would say prophecy actually is for today. Whereas a Reformed Baptist from 1689 or a, a Reformed Presbyterian from 1647 is gonna say, that's where they're gonna say, no, you're totally wrong on that. 
But we look at the Bible and we say, all of your arguments for why that's why the gifts are no longer for today don't measure up to what what Paul and Luke and John are clearly saying in the New Testament. So we, at that point, we say, you know what, we're going to go to the always reforming side of the equation. We're going to say we need to reform this understanding of the Spirit. So, so we hold to the reform, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit as the, the third person of the Trinity. So in terms of the uh, defining who the Spirit is, well, we're going to hold to the reformed tradition there. But when it comes to the experience of the Spirit in the Christian's life, that's where we say, no, the Bible needs to reform that because you guys are off there. Any questions on that? But what that means, um, you know, our, our TCOF, Trinity Confession of Faith, which was official, officially signed in some ways in 2022. So if you, if you, com- if you hold that up to the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, about 80% of it will be in agreement. We, ha- we have tried to modernize the language, so it doesn't mean that every word is going to be identical, but every sentence will be communicating the same truth. So say 80% of Westminster and the Trinity Confession of Faith line up. If you go to the 1689, it's probably about um, 90, 90% of the, of the 1689 lines up with our Trinity Confession of Faith. Now, the part left over is really important. It's a really big deal. So we define uh, church government and how churches should connect differently than the London Baptist guys. And we define the work of the Spirit different than the London Baptist guys. So actually, a, a, a true London Baptist guy, 1689, he's not going to come to our church. We've, ha- we've had a guy, actually, I went out to lunch with a guy who came to our church was so excited that we were that we even mentioned the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So we went out to lunch and we started talking, and it was obvious that the gifts of the Spirit that we believe and, and his understanding of the gifts of the Spirit, like it was just not going to work. So he never came back. So <clears throat> we enjoyed a you know Shake Shack lunch. Uh, however, that was the last thing we've enjoyed so far. I mean, we, he he wouldn't be bitter. We could have great fellowship again at Shake Shack, but he he's not going to come back to our church because of those differences. So again, a lot of it, we just hold to what the Reformed tradition gives us, and then some of it is always reforming. So in conclusion, this always reforming idea, you don't want to just, you don't want to think of that only in doctrinal terms, because that actually probably isn't how it was originally meant. Um, I think it's because of the, the Sola Scriptura uh, idea, it's useful to think that, that you should refine and you should change what needs to be changed if, if your doctrine is off. But you also don't want to live life thinking your doctrine is always up for grabs because that, that's, that's not faithful biblical Christianity. I mean, faithful biblical Christianity is that there's a tradition that you can actually learn and that you must hold to. That's faithful biblical Christianity. To leave that solid ground of uh, a sound doctrine doesn't make you a really, uh, uh, you know, open-minded, scholarly Christian. It makes you unfaithful. I mean, like right now, progressive Christianity uh, has has taken on that moniker of progressive, and it's amazing how often if it's got if it says progressive, it's it's bad. Don't go there. You know, they're they're progressing in ways that are always wrong. But progressive Christianity, the more you you dive down and what they act into what they actually believe, the more and more this is not Christianity. This is only progressive. This this is not Christianity. Uh, so, 
we don't want to think of doctrine as this always up for grab, constantly changing thing. Next year, you know, we're, we're reformed, Baptistic continuations. This year, next year we'll be cessationist, whatever's. That's not how it works. You know, so we want, once our doctrine is established, that's a stake in the ground. We don't, we don't leave that. We hold to that. So our elders, you know, at, in, in Trinity Fellowship Churches, our elders go on record in saying, I subscribe to this confession of faith as what I believe and teach, what, and, I, and I believe that this is what the Bible teaches, and I will hold this and defend this and teach this and proclaim this happily, joyfully, for as long as I'm an elder. <clears throat> and if I ever change my mind on anything that's in the Trinity Confession of Faith, I actually have to then, uh, depending on the issue, I have to go, I have to go report that because I'm now, I've now uh, changed uh, uh, what sound, you know, what we have defined as sound doctrine. I've changed on that. Anyway, all that is to say, um, the reformed, always reforming idea, we have established theology. That's the reformed piece. But always reforming, that really has to do with now you need to change your thinking to line up with, the, what, with what the Word of God teaches, and you need to change your living to line up with what the Word of God uh, commands. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, in some ways, is this, is, this, is this spirit. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Not maybe, may. So may we be continually presenting our bodies as living sacrifices and renewing our minds according to his word. Amen. So just to, just to go back to the very beginning, uh, we call ourselves a Reformed Church because there are so many things that we hold to which were originally taught by the Reformers in the Reformation. And so it's not everything that they taught, but so many things that they taught. We just put our, we put our uh, stamp on that. And we say, Amen, Hallelujah, this is, what, this is what I see in my Bible. So if you want to go deeper in these ideas, um, you know, books by R.C. Sproul, books by John Piper, uh, books by Jerry Bridges. Um, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you've never read any theology and you're kind of intimidated to read it, but you'd like to kind of take a dive into theology, Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology or Bible Doctrine, that's a good place to, a good place to go. He does a, gr- does a great job with these, ref- the ideas of being reformed. Um, but yeah, those, those kinds of authors, and in fact, those are the authors that for most of us are why we're reformed individually. So I, you know, for me, I, I didn't get saved and then instantly think, oh, Martin Luther's right. No, I got saved and I had people come into my life and they recommended this book and that book and, the other, and, the, and these other books. And it turned out these were a set of guys that identified as reformed. And so then I got deeper into the, the original thinkers in the Reformation. All right, so time out for questions. Any questions or final thoughts? Jay. Is there a like a PDF or a Word doc version of of our Confession of Faith? Yes, it's it's on our website actually. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and uh, or you can go to trinityfellowshipchurches.com, trinityfellowshipchurches.com. Cool. But yeah, our website, yeah, has a, has a link to that. Cool. Yeah, Philip. How do you balance the the 
the joy we have as Christians in thinking about all of the, the, the throughout history and time and place of all Christians, sort of just the massive universality of the church and worshiping in heaven together and you know, brothers and sisters across the globe now with sort of where we are right now, which is our confession of faith where you, you could fit us all in a you know, gymnasium, basically. Or half a gymnasium. <laughs> yeah, we're pretty small right now. Yeah, I mean, like, where, yeah, I mean, where, in what moments do you really cling to the, like, we got it right. Maybe the first time in all of human history, we did it. Versus, like, you know, by, like, it's great. I'm going to see you in heaven someday. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, the church universal versus the church local, or however you want to parse that out, the church visible versus the church invisible, the church eternal uh, versus the church temporal. There's a notion that you know, when you say the church, you really want to understand that as all true, all true believers. And it's not just Christians, right? It's Jews, right? Believing Jews before, G before Jesus. Um, we're going to be there with Abraham and David and, and Moses and all of the believing uh, Jews before that, uh, or before Jesus. So all believers throughout all history are the church. And we all are united in our faith uh, around the key things. And so, by the, you know, praise God that we don't, uh, we don't have to pass this massively difficult doctrinal test to become Christians, right? We just have to, we have to put all of our, we have to trust God for salvation, trust Christ for salvation. And the, and the things that we get wrong, he washes away and we're still saved. Um, so the church, the church, you know, the church universal, the church throughout all time, uh, the church uh, that will be there as the people of God that we read about in Revelation, those are our people. And it's true that, the, that those, um, those heavenly saints, you know, today are splintered in not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands of denominations. There are so many, not just churches, but denominations, right? Uh, you know, we were, we were in another denomination, right? And we split off and we formed yet another denomination. Uh, so there are hundreds of thousands of denominations. So it is true that, you know, um, as we live life, we're, we're, we're separated into different churches. However, we do celebrate the fact that one day that won't be the case. We won't be divided. Our understanding will be complete, as complete as God wants it to be. And we will be united about the essentials and <clears throat> maybe we'll continue to study the, the word of God and, and the mysteries that are, are revealed there, but it, will, but it won't divide us in any kind of practical way. So I don't know, I just think it's, uh, you want to celebrate our unity, which is true and it's spiritual. And, and maybe another side of that is you never want to say that because, uh, because there are so many denominations and, and so many disagreements, therefore, it doesn't matter what we believe. Like there's, there's really wrong implications you can make based on the fact that we are in different churches and denominations. Like us in Shepherd's Church, we look at Shepherd's Church as a very true church, Bible-believing, good, faithful people there. Uh, we, hope to th we hope that they look at us if they ever think of us. They, we hope that they look at us in a, in a similar way. However, uh, we disagree about a lot of things. That's why there's two, there's, that's why there's two churches and we don't all go to the same church. Um, and those things matter. You know, the gifts of the Spirit matter. Our view of the end times matters. Uh, 
Um, they don't all, everything doesn't matter equally, but those things matter. And so we study and we work and we want to have a, we want to have a firm conviction on those things. Um, but we also understand that, you know what, we'll be there with, with the Shepherd's Church Christians and they'll be there with the, the Cornerstone Christians in heaven and it's going to be glorious. There, there won't be separate buildings at that point, you know, whatever it looks like at that day. So I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, that's, that is a great question. But please don't, yeah, don't make the mistake that because two Christians disagree about something, that thing doesn't matter. It is possible to be wrong. I mean, that's one reason why it matters. Uh, and it's possible that, uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah. So just, yeah, just don't say that theology doesn't matter because there's disagreements. Well, Father, we thank you for the Word of God, and we do, we do want to be biblical Christians. We thank you for our Reformed uh, brothers and sisters who have left us such a great heritage, and we do pray for just a better understanding of theology and the Bible so that we would live better lives, all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.